Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Welcome back to Pod Save the World. I'm Tommy Vitor. I'm Ben Rhodes. Ben, how are you feeling about these Virginia governors and down-ballot races? Did you pick up any intel on your visit to the swamp with uh, Shifty Schiff? <laughs> um, not really. I, I, uh, I talked to our former boss, Barack Obama, who was going to campaign for... Oh, that's right. He was out there on Saturday. Saturday. Yeah, so he was out there. I mean... He looked like he was having fun. Yeah, he, lo- he loves getting out there. I mean, <laughs> like, I, I think he enjoys it. Um yeah, it's it's these are always I, mean, I remember this both of these when Obama got elected the year after. It's this weird year. Sucks. Never feels good. Feels like everybody's gonna overread into the results, you know. Somehow we're all everyone's arguing about Tony Morrison. That's the closing argument. I'm like, well, what's happening? I, I tried couldn't figure it out, frankly. I uh, yeah. I, I was, you know. Like the Republicans wanna make it about like books and schools, which is such an old, timeless right-wing issues and Democrats are like, you want to talk about books and schools? We will engage you in that culture war rather than talk about the messages that uh, that work for us. Well, but I, I, don't know. we'll I will offer my world uh, opinion on that, um, which is that it's in a lot of places, what we've seen in recent years is far-right parties like to close on culture war issues because mm-hmm. they know they lose all the other ones. And, yes, and yes. usually what works is, doesn't mean you you know don't take your stand on those issues and, and we should, but you tend not to want to fight the last days of the election on the thing that the other guy wants to talk about. Yes. That's sort of like an iron rule of politics. Anyway, terrymcauliffe.com slash volunteer if you want to uh, sign up to volunteer. A couple days left here. Uh, Today we are going to cover the military coup in Sudan, how a Celtics basketball player is making waves in China to put it mildly, Uh, Israel's designation of six Palestinian human rights groups as terrorist organizations, Facebook's global impact, some kickback news from the Saudis, uh, some news out of Russia, a roundup of climate change updates, and then the best story of the day, cocaine hippos. Yeah, look, I want to say it's funny you read these lists of topics every week and and there's like the we don't plan the through line of the like Greek being authoritarianism around the world. (laughs) It just (laughs) presents itself to us, you know, like, you know, like uh, I wish that a book about global authoritarianism wasn't like in the zeitgeist. But um, the hippos, Hippos. on the other hand, is a whole different story. I feel like they should be living in Miami, but, you know, we'll get there. Yeah, we'll get there. Uh, Ben, if you have not listened to John Favreau's new series uh, I have. offline I have. I have. to the listeners, what is yeah. wrong with you? It, You're that, hurting yourself. That was so good. Comes um, out on Sunday. Yeah. Positive America feed. This week is with Gia Tolentino. Who, you know what? Like, so we have David Lamy on today, who is in the running for top five podcast guests. Mm-hmm. But she takes the crown. Yeah, Gia is so smart. So She's thoughtful. She's so smart. She makes you think about things differently. Yes. You like want to like be her friend. Desperately you know? want yeah. her approval. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, <laughs> you want like to think and talk like her. Yeah, yeah like, like an a, actual it, genius. It really good. Great so, episode. Exactly. Great show for John. We're excited for him to get Q-pilled by episode 10. It was good because you and I were a little hungover, I think, on Sunday after hanging out a on little. Saturday. And the capacity to just throw on a podcast and, and hear a very 
erudite conversation yeah, about the internet it was very soothing. Yeah, you took the dog for a walk, you, you listen to your friends talk. Uh, also, we're celebrating the two-year anniversary of What a Day, our fantastic daily podcast that gives you the news you need in like 20 minutes or less. Subscribe to What a Day. Huge congratulations to the entire team. Uh, doing a daily show is very difficult. It takes a ton of work. Uh, the whole crew has worked their asses off for two years to build a really successful show to shout out to them. Yeah, I'm glad we don't have to do a daily show. Uh, and I've been on their show. They're, you know, they're wicked smart yep. and uh, they cover what needs to be covered. What needs to be covered. Yeah, we're more and more on the one, <laughs> once a week. Once a week, we're going like, to crank it up, you know, yeah, like, like wind it up. Put, them out to, put us yeah. out the pasture. Uh, and then, Ben, our guest today, as you mentioned, is David Lammy. What did you guys talk about? Well, as always, a great discussion with David Lemmy. Uh, we started with the story we led with last week, uh, the killing of the British MP, David mm -hmm. Amos, and, and how they're thinking about safety for politicians and lawmakers in, in the UK. We then talked about kind of hate speech, Facebook, all the associated problems that are contributing to the toxic political environment there. So kind of uh, around the types of Facebook issues we've all been uh, discussing here. And then we got kind of the update on Brexit, which is spoiler, not, not going, going good, to, huh? Do, going too great. Some gas shortages so, and stuff. You know, senior British correspondent uh, David Lammy able to bring Oof. us up to speed on that. Excellent. We'll stick around for that. Okay, let's start in Sudan. Unfortunately, it's not good news. Um, we talked about this issue last week, but then on Monday, the Sudanese military took control of the country. They arrested the prime minister. They imposed a state of emergency and violently started cracking down on protesters. So the autocrat playbook. Uh, General Abdel Fattah al-Burnham, the leader of the Joint Civilian Military Council that had been running the place since former President Omar al-Bashir was deposed in 2019, he was supposed to hand over control of this transitional council in a few weeks. He chose not to. It would have been the first time the country was under full civilian control since 1989, I believe. But instead, the military staged this coup. Uh, protesters took to the streets to denounce the coup. The internet was cut off in most of the country. This all went down just a few hours after uh, Biden's envoy for the Horn of Africa left the country. He was there trying to stave off this exact outcome. So that's never a good sign. Yeah. No, never a yeah. good sign. Uh, on Monday, the White House suspended $700 million in economic aid that was intended to go to Sudan in support of this democratic transition. Um, so Ben, you sort of alluded to this. We've seen this story so many times now. Protests, calls for democracy lead to these hopeful and fragile transitions. And then ultimately the guys with the guns take over because they have a monopoly on violence and all the leverage. And that's just how it ends up going. Do you think there are lessons from Egypt, Sudan, like a lot of these different examples about what the international community can or cannot do differently to help give democratic transitions like the one we were hoping would flourish in Sudan a better chance of success? I mean, I alluded to this last time and people may think I have a hobby horse about it, but I mean, one of the lessons I took from Egypt is part of what happened is you had significant external encouragement from the Saudis and the Emiratis and, and basically the kind of autocratic order in the Middle East mm -hmm. um, to do a coup. Um, and, you know, when you're a military and you're trying to gauge whether or not to to take that step, take that risk, if there's a risk, um, having external support like that makes you feel better about doing it, especially if mm -hmm. there's money attached to it or something. And I, I, that's what always worried me about Sudan. And this this military leader is tight with the Saudis and the Emiratis. So I I, I do think one lesson is you know you got to line up every external actor who has influence in the country to be sending the same message and the message has to be 
stick to the transition plan, get to the election, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera. Um, I think another lesson is to kind of not just rely on the self-execution of you know, the civilian leaders in the transitional council or whatever, but to be investing in the stakeholders in the society you know, that uh, want to see democracy, the civil society. In Sudan, there's a powerful professional association. So that even when something like this happens, there's resistance and pushback, and um, it, it's less um, certain that it's the end of the story as it was in Egypt. Mm-hmm. And so that remains to be seen. I think some of that has happened in Sudan, but yeah. we'll have to see. Um, and then, look, I, you know, um, withholding the the aid is is obviously a necessary step. This was clearly done as kind of a fuck you to the U.S. I mean, you don't do it three hours after the envoy leaves unless you're kind of flexing a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, why not cancel the visit? Save, yeah. Save the guy a trip. Yeah. And, well, look, in the, um, the, the other reality here is that we had other leverage with Sudan, right? Um, we had a whole net of sanctions on them that were lifted in the middle of the transition to bring them into the Abraham Accords right before Trump's election. Um, that yep. might have been a good piece of leverage to have. Um, True. If you know you have, you know, I'm not a huge sanctions fan, as people know, but if you know you have them in place and you know there's a transition underway and you'd like to see the transition reach the end, um, and, and frankly, Sudan normalizing relations with Israel is great, but it's not the end of the Arab-Israeli conflict exactly, um, you know, that might have been helpful. Yeah, but, it uh, probably doesn't do much for the yeah. Sudanese people. And you're right, though. We we knew that you know this this transition from the uh, uh, military leader of the transitional council to a civilian leader of the transitional council was was written down in the calendar. They're supposed to get yeah. to an election at the end of 2023. None of that is now happening because of this coup. Why not say that the sanctions will be lifted as soon as the transition yeah. process is over? I don't know. Yeah, that's just one thought. You know. Yeah, that's because yeah, that's yeah, fair yeah. fair point. Uh, there's been some reporting I read about you know questions around what the civilian leaders had planned for former President Bashir in terms of accountability, whether he'd be shipped off to the ICC, whether that maybe spooked some of these generals who are running the transitional council because they're corrupt themselves. Um, the Economist pointed out that if the coup in Sudan is successful, it will be the fifth one this year. Yeah. Chad, Guinea, Mali, Myanmar, uh, now Sudan, between 2015 and 2020, there were three successful coups and four failed attempts. So this is not a great trend. No, and here's I, I think here's how people need to think about that, which is that we are clearly in like a an extended authoritarian moment around the world. And here in this country, it kind of felt like it, it reached some crescendo, you know, with Trump. Um, but not only are we not out of the woods in this country, but there's like a tail to an autocratic trend, you know, like, so these coups in some ways are reflective of what's been happening for the last decade, you know, where there's been an increasing normalization of, you know, militaries just saying, fuck it, you know, we'll, we'll take power. And I, I, I truly believe that what that means is you have to start by kind of fortifying, consolidating the foundation of the countries that are already democracies, you know, kind of kind of hold the line where you are and then try to find ways to really make transitions succeed when there's an opportunity. And 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 that may mean like the next time you get a chance, like a, 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 what happened in Sudan a couple of years ago, much more aggressive U.S. engagement than the Trump people did um, when the Sudan stuff happened, you know, more assistance on the ground, you know, like just you got to make those transitions succeed. You got to start really investing in the success of democratic transitions as aggressively as the autocrats invest in 
undermining democratic transitions. Yeah. Right now, there's an asymmetry there where autocratic, you know, the Russians, the Saudis, et cetera, et cetera, they are much more invested in seeing the success of autocracy than U.S., Europe, and the world's democracies are invested in the success of, of transitions. Yeah. I mean, look, and, and when you look regionally, I mean, it's the, the Horn of Africa, right? I mean, Somalia sort of historically had some problems. Ethiopia is in this civil war. Eritrea is involved. Sudan, South Sudan, we just talked about. Chad had a the recent coup. Libya is unstabilized. I mean, there's a lot of a lot of challenges regionally that, um, you know, could use a little engagement. Yeah, the Horn of Africa is just a mess right now. Yeah, um, Yemen across the yeah. way. Yeah, yeah. Um, you mentioned uh, the Saudis. So two stories that caught my eye out of Saudi Arabia. First, 60 Minutes did a big interview on Sunday with a former Saudi intelligence official named uh, Saad al-Jabri. Al-Jabri says he wants to, quote, sound the alarm about a psychopath killer in the Middle East with infinite resources who poses a threat to his people, to the Americans, and to the planet. This is Mohammed bin Salman, or MBS, the Saudi crown prince. Al-Jabri also claims that MBS sent hit squad to Canada to try and murder him back in the day, uh, and that MBS has imprisoned and tortured members of Al-Jabri's family. The second story uh, is one that was predicted a thousand times on this show, Ben, uh, which is that Trump officials are now cashing huge checks from Middle Eastern autocrats like the Saudis. The first example is Jared Kushner, or uh, Rasputin in a skinny suit, who is reportedly in talks to get as much as $2 billion from the Saudi government's public investment fund, or PIF. The PIF is the sovereign wealth fund that Mohammed bin Salman uses to spray cash uh, all over the planet and do stuff by like by the English Premier League team, uh, Newcastle United. So Jared's new private equity fund is about to get $2 billion as a thank you for helping cover up the murder of a journalist named Jamal Khashoggi. Uh, but he's not the only one, Ben. Bloomberg News reported that former Trump Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin just raised a huge amount of money, $2.5 billion, and that a bulk of it came from the Saudis and other Middle Eastern countries. So remember that Mnuchin spent the final days of the Trump administration flying around to these Gulf countries at a cost of $300,000 to taxpayers. So there you go. We learned in this section who MBS is, <laughs> total psychopath, and who he's paying off to allow him to act with impunity in the world. There we go. Very clean. I mean, look, we we don't usually do this, but like go back and play the tape. I don't know how many times on this podcast. It was so obvious. We didn't say, well, no, but the thing is some people were trying to be like, you know, oh, or the, the Saudis or somebody else like, investing in Kushner real estate properties. No, the payoff, we always said, the payoff is always on the back end. It is always on the back end. And this is billions of dollars that are being given to Jared Kushner for the service he provided yeah. in covering up for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, in supporting like a, uh, the war in Yemen full tilt, uh, like and on and on down the list and looking the other way when his family members were being tortured or according to some reports, perhaps even helping him identify um, which family members might be of concern. So like th th this is utterly predictable and speaks to like a very deep corruption in American foreign policy. Because the reason they do the payoff on the back end isn't just to reward the Jared Kushner's of the world and come back to that. It's to send a message to everybody that like, hey, if you want like this kind of payoff, just do our bidding when you're in there, mm -hmm. you know, and that payoff can be, you know, uh, putting money into your fund. It can be paying. Come you, give a speech. Come give a speech and we'll give you fifty, hundred thousand dollars Go on the board of a defense contractor and we'll buy the, the, a lot of weapons from those people and make them rich. There is so much corruption in American foreign policy. And it, Jared Kushner is the easiest mark. But like the reality is it, it doesn't stop there. Now, on Jared Kushner, this is another reminder that this isn't over. 
You know, like I think sometimes no. like those of us with our political views are like, well, the Trump lost the election and Jared's a fool and all the rest of it. No, like the, the, the Saudis probably think it's quite likely Jared Kushner will be back in the White House in yeah. two years. Or at least right? he's a plugged in guy. Forever. Yeah, he's a he plugged you know, in guy forever. Yeah. You know, Trump is back in there or whatever. And, and, and like this is another reason why I don't get, you know, I mentioned last time, like the coddling of the Emiratis that we keep seeing. And we, we've talked about MBS, you know, obviously escaped any kind of sanction like. These people are not your friends, you know, like, yeah. um, and, and, and we, you know, there's an upcoming G20, for instance, uh, I'm curious whether Mohammed bin Salman goes to that, mm-hmm. like thus far, like rightly Joe Biden has not engaged Mohammed bin Salman at all. I hope that continues to be the case, even if he's in the same room with the guy, because what he wants to do is normalize himself, you know, as like this kind of leader who's just accepted by everybody wanting you to forget <laughs> what this guy usefully reminded us of. Hey, he's a sociopath. Total who, sociopath. Who tortures his family and chops people up in consulates. Like, do you want, you know, even if Mohammed bin Salman can put on a different public face, do you want somebody who has revealed himself to be that character and who, as this guy points out, has infinite resources to feel totally empowered? And whether we're talking about buying the, you know, the Premier League club in Newcastle, all these things are of a piece with normalizing this guy and we will live to regret it. Yep. And uh, interesting, the 60 Minutes did this piece that was pretty brutal on MBS when they did that giant puff piece back in 2018 when everyone was yeah. trying to believe that he was a big reformer. Uh, you know, good for them. Remember that interview? Yeah. Yeah, it was, yeah. It was not great. Um, they, they didn't reference that, though. No, they, uh, they didn't remind the, yeah, the, the, the viewers. This, this yeah. is the, uh, this is the, you know, you know, when the, the ref misses a call and like you get yeah. one in like the third quarter or yeah, whatever. Yeah. yeah, this is that. Uh, ben, my Boston Celtics are. Back in the news, not just because they lost Double to your time. New York yep. Knicks. Yes, and your fans celebrated like it was the fucking Super Bowl. That's, that's uh, Knicks fans. And his canter, who plays center for the Celtics and has been a guest on this show. Friend of the pod. You Friend did a fantastic yeah. interview with him back in. Very tall. Uh, I feel like I listened to it when I was in Iowa doing my yeah, series. That's exactly what happened. January 2020. He was 2020. here in the studio. He was in the studio. God, the before times. He's yeah. so ripped, too. Yeah, yeah, he's ripped. Um, anyway, <laughs> so Ennis has decided to go all in on denouncing the Chinese government. So first... He posted a video supporting Tibetan independence. In response, Tencent, which is a massive Chinese technology company, cut the broadcast of the Celtics-Knicks game. Uh, and a Celtics fan account on Weibo, which is Chinese Twitter, said it would suspend coverage of the Celtics, I think, indefinitely. Then on Monday, Cantor was like, fuck you. He doubled down by wearing shoes during a game that said modern day slavery and, quote, no more excuses, which are references to the Chinese government putting uh, the Uyghurs in forced labor camps in China. And then he called out Nike for talking about social justice in the United States and Black Lives Matter while remaining silent about police brutality and oppression of minorities in China. And he said that Nike shoes are made with slave labor. So, uh, and this is not pulling any punches here. Uh, ben, a couple of years ago, we talked about when Daryl Morey, then the general manager of the Houston Rockets, tweeted something that was honestly pretty benign about Hong Kong. And there was this massive overreaction from the Chinese government. They started pounding on him and threatening the league, et cetera, et cetera. Cantor is going much harder at issues that have historically been far more sensitive yeah. for the Chinese government. What do you think happened here? Like, how do you think this this plays out? Do you think the Chinese target their ire at Cantor, the Celtics, the league? I mean, this feels like a like it could be explosive. Well, I mean, the first thing is, uh, and as Cantor, you know, he is increasingly been vocal and politically engaged as a voice on human rights issues. And it started in Turkey, right? Um, and But, it, you know, he's not limited his comment to that. And this is a sign that this guy, you know, clearly thinks of himself 
as, as an activist. Yep. And, and I got that sense when I talked to him on the show. And, and for him to start with like Tibetan independence is like he knew like is that the most sensitive? You think that's it's like the third be, rail. It's you know it's because that's beyond even Taiwan or Hong Kong. Yeah, right? like, that's like the old like school. That, that's like that. Yeah. So I think he he was clearly intending, you know, and I don't know this. I haven't talked to him, but like clearly intending to make the the most aggressive point he could that he would not be silenced on these issues. You know, like yeah. that, that was fairly obvious, right? He's gonna put out like a little like a, a little video, a gif of him dunking on Xi Jinping or something. Well, what he did do that was interesting. I saw is that like because what what the Chinese can do also is like cancel people's shoe contracts in China because yeah, a lot yeah, of these yeah. NBA guys yep. have, have shoe contracts there. And he's like, all right, you can buy my shoes that are like making fun of Xi Jinping or something. <laughs> like he's trolling the whole apparatus uh-huh. right, of authoritarianism, which is interesting. I think for the what the Chinese will do, you know, what they try to do generally is take it out on usually the the parent company, right? Because um, then that that that, that that has the broadest chilling effect possible. Right. Like, you and know, like, can get the top-down pressure on Ennis. But I, yeah. And, and the thing is, Ennis, you know, like when he had the, Erdogan took his games off TV in Turkey too, mm-hmm. which is obviously a smaller market, but it's not a tiny no, market. No. Um, and the NBA had his back in that case. I mean, look, I, I think when the NBA came down on the side of, of basic free speech after the whole Mori dust settled, um, you know, like you always knew some other player could talk about China. You know, like this was looming out there, you know, and and so um, it'll be interesting to see how how far the Chinese take it, because um, basically it, it, at the end of the day, if the NBA is not going to control the speech of all their players, like you're always going to be living with this possibility and you're either going to have the NBA in China or you're not. And that's ultimately like a Chinese decision. Here, yeah. You know? And a multi-billion dollar decision. And um, the Chinese people really like basketball. Though. Yeah. That's, I mean, so it's not without, it's not like an obscure sport there. It's like the most popular, by far the most popular American sport yeah. in, in China. There's some costs. Um, you, you mentioned how Cantor has spoken out uh, against the Turkish government. I saw over the weekend a report that President Erdogan of Turkey uh, declared 10 Western ambassadors, including the United States ambassador, the U.S. ambassador, as persona non grata. Normally that means they literally expel you from the country because those 10 countries called for the release of a prominent Turkish civil society activist named Osman Kavala. So that relationship is going well. Well, and again, like what all these guys want is it for it to, to, to feel so pointless to challenge them. You know, <laughs> like, like across the board, every autocrat, whether it's like a Trump in this country who make, wants to make people kind of turned off and cynical, or whether it's a Chinese government trying to bully companies, or whether it's Erdogan trying to bully... I don't know, ambassadors, whatever it is, they, they're just trying to make it seem so tiresome and futile and not worth it, you know, and, and once you succumb to that, you know, then you're, you're toast. Yeah. Uh, speaking of exhausting fights, uh, let's talk about uh, Benny Gantz, the Israeli defense minister, Ugh. signing an order last week that designated six well-known Palestinian human rights groups that are operating in the West Bank as terrorist organizations. So the, the defense ministry claimed that these groups are linked to the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, or PFLP, which is a left-wing organization that has sort of a, a political movement and a military wing. It has carried out attacks against Israel. Uh, the PFLP has been designated as a terrorist organization by the United States, by Israel, and by the EU. So that they're sort of a known quantity, but the connection was new between these human rights groups and the uh, PFLP. The announcement was quite controversial because these six groups are, are well-known. They've gotten funding from the United Nations, from EU member states. Leaders of the group say that the designation was just an effort to silence them 
um, to cut off their funding. The State Department said that they didn't have any advance notice uh, about this action, that they wanted more information. Uh, liberal Israeli cabinet members uh, and members of the Knesset were pissed because they too didn't get any advance notice. Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch released a joint statement that said, quote, this decision is an alarming escalation that threatens to shut down the work of Palestine's most prominent civil society organizations, end quote. So, Ben, I'm just wondering what the State Department should do here. Obviously, if there is evidence that an organization is supporting terrorism in some way or hiring terrorist members, like that is a big deal. That's relevant. Of course, you'd want to know that. But none of that has been made public. And I'm not sure I've heard a process through which it would ever be made public. So we're kind of relying on hearsay at the moment. But I I don't know. What do you think the state's going to do here? So, I mean, this feels like complete fucking bullshit to me. Um, These are very prominent organizations. You know, they're not like kind of weird, you know, you just heard of them for the first time. These are like the prominent Palestinian civil society human rights organizations that, by the way, report not just on the Israeli government, but also on like the Palestinian Authority. And Hamas. And Hamas. And and they work with international organizations. And, you know, so, and, and look, on the intelligence side, you know, with the Israelis saying they have this information, if they, if there was one organization, right, you might think, okay, I wonder what, you know, is there something happening there? Like, is there some money trail? The fact that there's six of them, you know, feels much more like an effort to just shut down Palestinian civil society than some very precise intelligence-based case about, like, you know, somebody who works at one of these NGOs has some ties that are troubling, you know? So, so i it just feels to me like what part of what these organizations do is reveal the injustice of what's happening on the West Bank. And, you know, you want to eliminate Palestinian civil society. Um, the, the State Department, you know, part of what bothers me about this is like the State Department statement, um, I think, noticeably pointed out that they had no advance notice of this. Mm-hmm. To revisit something we've talked about on the show, like the case made by the Biden administration is that a quiet approach in which you never have any public differences with the Israeli government is the one that's going to yield the results on all this stuff that we care about. But that doesn't work if they don't tell you. If it's one-sided. If, they're gonna, if it's one-sided. Yeah. <laughs> if they don't tell you that they're... Like, we, I saw a few days ago, we launched a process to renegotiate or reopen our consulate to the Palestinian people with the Israeli government. Not with the Palestinians. So we're saying that we will consult with you, not only quietly, but publicly about the representation that we're going to have to these Palestinians. So I I wanted to talk about that. Yes, this is a really, really important point because it used to be the case that there were two separate diplomatic offices in Jerusalem, right? There was one, an embassy that focused on U.S.-Israeli affairs, and there's a consulate in East Jerusalem that was the point of contact for the Palestinians. The Trump folks closed down the Palestinian consulate, what, two years ago or something like that? I think Biden had said he planned to reopen it, but now has this working group going. So this is controversial. What's among, so complicated about it? Right. Well, Just open it. Well, so it's right. con- like these the some in the Israeli government don't want this consulate reopened because they don't believe that the Palestinian state should include any part of East Jerusalem. And so they're fighting it. Michael Oren, the former Israeli ambassador to the U.S., did an interview with the biggest free tabloid in Israel about how to prevent this consulate from being reopened by the U.S. And here is part of what he said, Ben. This is a quote. Theoretically, one could stop providing electricity and water to the building, and it is possible to do other things that we shouldn't talk about right now. This is insane. I- I'm just trying to imagine what this would happen. It's completely utterly insane. If you went out and said, we should cut off electricity and water to Israeli diplomats living in the U.S. unless settlement construction halted. That that's what we're that's the equivalent. And this is someone who's treated like very se- sober and serious. He's an Michael academic. Yes. This is a guy who like wrote some insane piece a few years ago about how like Barack Obama's 
you know, because he's black, he doesn't like Israel or something. I mean, uh, like, yeah, it was really Islamophobic. The, the, the dregs of, of racist Islamophobic garbage. And this guy's constantly like treated like some, you know, sober commentator. Look, uh, to, so the point is that like <laughs> quiet, intense diplomacy has to be a two way street, you know? And if they're surprising us about uh, announcements like this that are going to be very detrimental to what the U.S. says it stands for in terms of democracy and civil society, Remember the Gaza uh, reconstruction? How's mm -hmm. that going? Mm -hmm. Like, what have we? Where, where's that? Like, what's no, the update know. on that? No like, because uh, it's certainly not happening, yeah. right? I mean, that was what was going to happen, right? We, we we thought like you get a ceasefire and then you can address the underlying humanitarian situation. And, and so, so to me, if you know, just think about it in your interpersonal relationships. If you have someone who will indulge any manner of your behavior and will declare as a matter of of, of personal like policy that they would never ever criticize you and you can do whatever you want and there'll never be any consequences for it because we'll never consider conditioning assistance or anything why would that why would you change your behavior yeah you know, you know like i i so th that's where we are like if, if the if there's going to be no never gonna be any negative consequences for anything that the israeli government does and to me part of what's notable here is that we've seen this new government kind of continue things that we didn't like that BB did, put a bit bit of a better front on some things. But this is the first kind of real escalation of their own. Mm -hmm. You know, this is a new thing that yep, they've done. Yep. Like, I just, if there are no guardrails around it, it's just going to keep happening. Yeah, to me, I mean, these stories aren't totally related, the, the designation of the human rights groups and Michael Oren's comments, but they kind of are because to me, they suggest how far even these sort of conservative intellectual class that are conservative in Israel feel like they can go to punish critics, like literally cutting off electricity and water to American diplomats what, Mike, because they're Michael, advancing the policy that we believe in. Yeah, Michael Oren was the ambassador yeah. to the United States. I mean, this guy was a diplomat, you know, not, not just some bomb thrower in Israeli politics. So you're right. It just shows you that there's a sense of we can say and do whatever we want and there'll never be any consequences. And again, like I say this, like I, 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 I wish it was different. Like I wish we had, like, uh, um, but it, it, you can't simultaneously say that you support civil society around the world and then kind of just be okay with this. You know? Yeah, I mean, let's just let's just not threaten to uh, cut off the water to diplomats or call groups terrorists without any evidence. Yeah, well, that's the thing. Let's maybe and, start and, there. Okay, and like, look, if they have evidence, like, well, what is it? You know, release let's it. see it, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, release it, or 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 let like I'd like to hear the Biden team say that they're persuaded by the evidence, at least then we'd like have something to go on. Right now we have very little. Yeah. Pod Save the World is brought to you by the UN Refugee Agency. The UN Refugee Agency, or UNHCR, responds to emergencies and provides long-term solutions for refugees. They provide aid in over 130 countries, including Ukraine, Syria, Afghanistan, and Sudan, where people are forced to flee from war and persecution at their greatest moment of need. UNHCR helps and protects refugees by providing food, shelter, medical care, and other life-saving essentials. The agency jumpstarts relief in three key ways. They transport core relief items stored in even the most remote areas of the world. They deploy expert emergency staff trained to help in crisis situations, and they transfer funds directly to support the emergency. Because of generous supporters and donors, UNHCR can scale up its response within 72 hours of a large-scale emergency. 
Your support helps provide life-saving aid for refugees whenever and wherever emergencies occur. Donate to USA for UNHCR by visiting unrefugees.org slash donation. That's unrefugees.org slash donation. Support for Pod Save the World comes from the International Rescue Committee. The IRC works in more than 50 countries, serving people whose lives have been upended by war, conflict, and natural disasters. In places like Gaza, Ukraine, and Sudan, displaced families are experiencing war, extreme hunger, and life-threatening injuries. In Gaza, ongoing violence, bombardment, and blockade have made survival difficult for families living in damaged buildings and tents. The lack of safe water, medicine, and healthy food contributes to the spread of diseases, and children are especially at risk. The International Rescue Committee is working with local partners in Gaza to provide life-saving medical care to injured civilians. The IRC works around the world to help families in crisis by delivering critical supplies such as therapeutic food for malnourished children, clean water, cash assistance, and more. Your donation will support this work and help children and families survive. Listen, the International Rescue Committee is an incredible organization. They are doing the Lord's work all around the globe. I have donated to them, you know, for many, many years now because I know that my dollar will go towards helping people. It's not going to go to administrative costs or overhead fees. It's just an incredible group doing great work. I hope you'll consider them. Donate today by visiting rescue.org slash rebuild. That's rescue.org slash rebuild. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. We all carry around different stressors, big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Listen, if you're listening to Pod Save the World, you need some therapy. If you're watching the events around the world that might freak you out, we've got this election coming down the pike. There's a lot of stuff that people uh, are stressed about, that are anxious about, stuff that makes you lose sleep, and therapy can help. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash crookedworld. Go today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash crookedworld. Ben, you may have noticed that Facebook has been in the news a bit. Just a touch. Just a touch. So I just want to do a quick roundup of some of the international angles, then we can just talk about whatever part we want. Um, I think the key point to understanding Facebook's approach to its expansion globally is this. Only 13% of Facebook's moderation staff hours are dedicated to users outside the United States, despite the fact that 90% of Facebook's users are outside the United States. So it's totally under-resourced. Uh, there was a story about how Facebook bowed to pressure from the Vietnamese government to censor dissidents. They chose to stay in Vietnam uh, and take down these dissident accounts. There was a story about how Facebook was used to spread hate speech in India and how Facebook didn't penalize Hindu nationalist groups that were spreading violent inflammatory content because they had ties to the ruling political party. That sounds familiar to me uh, as, a, as an American. Uh, there are reports of Facebook being used for human trafficking of domestic workers to Gulf countries and evidence that Facebook only took steps to stop it after bad media coverage and threats from Apple and Google to remove them from their app stores. A 2020 Facebook report found that only 6% of Arabic language uh, hate content was detected during, a, I think, a month-long period in Afghanistan. Only 0.23% of hate speech was taken down. So that's like, I don't think I came close to getting all of it. But the key takeaway to me was that Facebook is not even close to sufficiently resourced to moderate content in all these places where it operates, and that basically they don't seem to care that much. Um, 
I know the volume of this stuff has been enormous. I, I don't really know how to process all the shit that came out this week, but any like big takeaways for you or or thoughts on like, okay, we write all this stuff. Now, what do we do about it? Because that always seems to be the hardest part. I, I think there's a, a few takeaways I have with the you know preface being that like like Jared Kushner's back end payment, we've been talking about this stuff for years, which doesn't make us geniuses. Everybody could see Facebook kind of tearing things apart. Uh, I, a few things stand out to me. One, um, if you look at the the like the Modi's of the world, right? There's a lot on Indian here and how like turbocharged the, mm-hmm. the the hate environment was towards Muslims and stuff in India. Part of what the kind of autocratic movements or, or nationalist movements or ethnocentric movements have done is they've just figured out the algorithm, right? So, so in here, part of what they figured out is like if you accuse them of liberal bias, they'll come out with their hands up and let you do whatever <laughs> you want. But what they've done internationally is realize that if you just flood the zone, yep. right, with your yep. content, you can basically take over Facebook and turn it into the perfect dissemination vehicle of propaganda and conspiracy theory and hate and, and, and just overwhelming force. And, and oh, by the way, you can also threaten Facebook that if you, you know, try to do anything about that, we'll kick you out of the country and they'll come out with their hands up, mm-hmm. right? That leads to the second point, which is like, why do they do this apart from being craven, profit, mad, megalomaniacal, sociopathic lunatics? <laughs> In addition to that, why do they do this? Um, when I looked at, at Myanmar and the question of why they basically, you know, helped disseminate a hate campaign that led to an ethnic cleansing um, with no content moderators in the country. One of the questions I asked the activist there was like, well, why is Facebook even here? Why do they even care? <laughs> like, if it's not mm-hmm. that big a market. Like, why do they have to get their app into this country and destroy it just to be there? And what I was told is that Facebook doesn't care about the Myanmar market on its own. It's not like part of their profit model. They believe that they need to be the dominant information platform everywhere because if they're not somewhere, a competitor might emerge, right? So if they're not in Myanmar, someone could create a a different kind of Facebook there that then spreads elsewhere. And and the evidence for that is the fact that they basically subsidize internet usage for people in places like Burma. Just so they can get hooked and addicted to Facebook and so they don't have to worry about a competitor emerging from some other part of the world. Think about how insane and megalomaniacal that is. And think about what that says about the antitrust case against them. (laughs) They need this global monopoly just for the sake of having the global monopoly, just so there could never, ever be a competitor to them. That is against every ethos of what antitrust is supposed to be. We need to break these people up into component parts and regulate them. Like, that's the answer. We all know what the answer is. That's the answer. And the only other thing that jumped out to me from the last uh, couple of weeks is that we have focused a lot on this podcast about the danger to democracy, the danger to physical safety in other countries. One other thing that has come out in this whistleblower stuff, though, that because not everybody cares about that as much as you and I do. One of the sad things we've learned in this country is that a bunch of people in America yeah, don't they, care they're, about they're democracy. They're good with it. This stuff about, like, women, like girls getting bullied and shamed on like Instagram and stuff that hits like very close to like I have daughters. Like I'm thinking about how are they going to grow up and and what are they going to be subjected to on Facebook's, you know, apps like that I think has a a capacity to enlarge the number of people who are pissed about this. Yeah. Protecting kids is a thing that should unite people. I mean, for God's sake, the QAnon people ostensibly think that they're protecting kids. You know, you'd think they'd want to protect them well, from being human bullied or trafficked. Yeah, for real. Yeah, truly. Yeah. yeah, but they also support like Matt Gates. So, yeah, I mean, just 
contradiction to maybe, the, maybe the QAnon people are not motivated by a sincere desire to deal with the human trafficking. Yeah, I mean, look, there's definitely a, a sort of a culty partisan piece of it, but I think do think there's like some some moms who got you know pulled into the wrong Facebook group and probably think all this stuff is happening and real. And you know, you read about Jeffrey Epstein and okay, sure, maybe it all makes sense. I don't know. Yeah, well, and but and that gets to, again like the, the there are people right who have sincere concerns about these issues and human trafficking, bullying to the point of suicide, like these kinds of things that are happening, I think can enlarge the number of people that are concerned about Facebook and want to see action beyond the people who just are concerned that it's destroying democracy and leading mm -hmm. to ethnic cleansing around the world. Yeah. Well, look, no, the, the flip side of this debate is uh, what's happening in Russia right now that we're going to talk about, which is a story about internet censorship. Um, the Times reported that Russia has been implementing a new system to censor the internet. The, the Russian government literally forced telecom companies to install hardware in their offices, these black boxes that allow a command center in Moscow to block, filter, and slow down websites and content they found objectionable. Uh, the Times had one example where an image the government objected to would now take basically 10 times as long to load, sort of rendering Twitter or whatever, like unusable. Uh, on previous shows, we've talked about how the Russian government threatened to arrest local Google and Apple employees if they didn't remove an app run by supporters of uh, Russian opposition leader Alexei Navalny around the election. Um, so, you know, what's interesting about this, I think, is that Russia's internet was like kind of relatively free, relatively open, or at least usable. You get around stuff with VPNs. Um, that seems to be changing. And now the internet freedom in Russia that was left over is getting crushed. So what's interesting about this to me, Ben, is it's a Russian story, but also a global one, because cutting off the internet is is autocrat 101, right? We just talked about the Sudanese coup. The yeah. first thing they did was so cut off the internet, same in Burma. Um, is there, do you think there's like a, a flip side of this Facebook debate, like some way the international community could come up with a process, a technology, a, a coalition to counter this kind of censorship because it's pervasive, it's growing. I, I'm sure we'll see more of it um, when Russia and China start exporting all that they've learned. Yeah, I, I worry that, you know, we are moving inexorably to a circumstance where there's just kind of different internets and different technology supply chains and different information ecosystems between kind of the autocratic world and the rest of the world, you know? I wish that wasn't the case, you know? So when people say like, you know, you shouldn't be for kind of decoupling um, uh, of these te tech ecosystems or, you know, you want at least the capacity for people in Russia to see what's on YouTube, you know, even if it comes with like the autocratic strings attached. But the reality is it's not the U.S. making these decisions. It's the Chinese and mm -hmm. the Russians and the autocrats who are basically getting much more aggressive and, and forthright in just saying, hey, we, we, no, the, we're going to have our own version of the Internet. And, and you know, if you're a U.S.-based tech company, you either have to completely play by our rules um, or, you know, that's it. And I think that's going to become untenable for U.S. platforms, unfortunately. And so I, I think what part of what's going to happen is it's going to have to be managing this kind of uh, uh, evolution to a new reality in which there's not kind of one Internet, but there are these different national um, spaces. And then I think part of it is also like, is there any way to make certain information like available in places like yeah, VPNs, you know, or, countering blocking yeah. or VPNs? Because like 
that's just where we're headed. So we might as well prepare for it, even if it's not our preferred outcome. Right. You know? Right. Right. Um, okay. A couple more things. So let's talk uh, climate change because the big summit's coming up at the end of this month, early next month. So a couple of pieces of news here. First, uh, the Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison, finally pledged to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050. However, he did not commit to any target for emissions cuts by 2030, which is the goal of this upcoming summit and has no plan to limit fossil fuel use. So a lot of people are quite skeptical yeah. of uh, the uh, the pooper in chief over there in Australia. Was that in McDonald's? Was it him yeah, in McDonald's? McDonald's? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Good, good for him. Second, the UN released a report uh, Tuesday that says the updated climate change plans that have been presented and discussed so far uh, don't even come close to producing the cuts that are needed. The UN says the new pledge would collectively produce one-seventh of the additional emissions cuts required to limit global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Uh, that's the key limit we need uh, to, to stay under to prevent more catastrophic weather events. Uh, we are in the at the end of a, a deluge of rain here in California, yeah. reminding us how everything's extreme in different directions, like five-year drought, <laughs> two years worth of rain in 48 hours, not good. Uh, third, the AP reported that the White House is working on a package of clean energy strategies that could meet our emissions uh, reduction goals and get the okay of Prime Minister Joe Manchin. So good news, a bit of a mixed bag there, Ben. How are you feeling about this But as you uh, prepare to head to Scotland? I mean, I think everybody's known that this was going to underperform kind of the 1.5 target, um, which you need to kind of keep alive as a, as a possibility. Um you know, I think that the U.S. piece, it's welcome if they can get this through. But what's missing, which is not at all Joe Biden's fault, is a, we talked about this, the punitive side, right? It, it, you know, investing in clean energy is great and everybody can agree to that. But like at a certain point, you need to be shutting shit down, right? Mm -hmm. You can be shutting down coal plants and in, in, in fossil fuels. That's how you get from one seventh to seven seventh. You know, like you, yeah. it's not just by building new clean energy, it's by shutting down the old energy faster. Right? And, and Australia has a ton of CO2 emissions. Yeah. They have a lot of coal, they have a lot of fossil fuels. I, I think they might be the dirtiest country per capita in terms of, in terms CO2 of emissions. exporting co2 yeah, yeah. And, and so so and the other thing is that you know you've basically seen i think depressingly the geopolitics work against action you know like we t xi jinping's not going to this summit mm -hmm. you know putin's not going to the summit now it seems yeah, why like isn't putin going what's what's it, what does he have to do it makes me wonder whether or not part of what's happening is people like xi and putin saying we're just going to stop going to your summit's liberal international order, you know, like, and, and and that's pretty dangerous because they've already rendered the UN Security Council kind of pointless uh, on a lot of things by blocking mm -hmm. anything, right? On whether it's Tigray or Sudan or Syria or whatever, Myanmar, um, they're just slowing down the gears of of these uh, institutions. And and you should think of Glasgow as part of an institution. It's part of the UN process that implements the Paris Agreement. And, you know, it's not great. Um, no. And so I think what you have to do at Glasgow is try to get everything done you can. And if governments are going to kind of underwhelm, then, you know, are, can you get private sector commitments? Can you get kind of creative solutions and financing? Can you get w whatever you can um, to just, cr you know, creak up that ambition closer to what you need for 1.5 degrees Celsius. Fingers crossed. 
hopefully that Joe Biden gets something big over the finish line before uh, he, he takes off tomorrow. Wednesday? When does he leave? Wednesday, Thursday? I think he's going to... Yeah, uh, that should help. I mean... Italy he, first, maybe? He's the Pope. For the G20, the yeah. Pope in G20. It should help. You know, if the U.S. can get something done, that will be a big positive news story, even if it's not as good as it could have been with the clean energy standard. And then if... You know, who knows? Like, does does India come? <laughs> Modi's apparently going, right? That's good. Like, for all the <laughs> criticism we have of Modi, um, you know, maybe there's some upside surprises. I don't know. But it, what everybody should know is it's not going to be Glasgow's not going to be enough, and it was never going to be enough. But like, you want to advance the ball as far as you can around these summits, and then just going to have to keep the pressure on. Unfortunately, the weather is going to give us a lot of reasons to do that. Yeah. Uh, last story. Uh, here's a headline from the Washington Post. Pablo Escobar's cocaine hippos are legally people, U.S. court rules. I think we maybe should just stop there because you're not going to do better than that headline. You really aren't. Um, cocaine hippo. I have to say, though, the underlying story is pretty interesting. Okay. Well, here's the backstory. Yeah. So the uh, long-deceased Colombian drug lord, Pablo Escobar, apparently smuggled a bunch of hippos to his estate in Colombia in the 1980s. Because when you're having cocaine parties in the 80s, got to have a hippo. Got to have a hippo. Got to have a hippo. Yeah. Uh, these hippos did what animals do, uh, and now their wild offspring live in the wetlands in the region and have become the l- largest invasive species on the planet, Which literally. Is crazy. That's like a really interesting, I didn't know that. Yeah. There's basically just all these hippos in Colombia. Just chilling, yeah. just chilling. And the, and the Colombian government <laughs> considered killing some of them because you really don't want to piss off a no, hippo. They're, they're mean animals. Especially a coked up hippo. I mean, the males, yeah. they're really aggressive. They weigh a couple tons. They have 20 inch long teeth. I went down a rabbit hole on this. Yeah. Read a story about a guy who got swallowed by a hippo, survived. You don't want that. No, no. But <laughs> an animal rights lawyer filed a lawsuit to prevent the culling of the herd. So now the Colombian government is trying to figure out a different path, maybe a humane way to sterilize these bad boys so that they don't procreate <laughs> yeah. and spread. There's like yeah, 120. Yeah fucking wild hippos cruising yeah, around and kind of a fair you don't want that so the animal legal defense fund says that this interested person's designation for the cocaine hippos is actually a critical milestone in its larger effort to create legal rights for animals uh in the u.s in the u.s legal system so fascinating stuff i don't know i don't know what to do See, that seemed pretty interesting to me that like basically you're trying to prevent these animals from being killed by giving them some status. Like, I just found that fascinating from a legal perspective. Mm -hmm. Um, It wasn't clear to me that the Colombians are going to abide by this. Yeah, that part didn't make sense. Um, You would like to think that there's a way to control the hippo population without killing the hippos. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, you Uh, know, snip, snip, right? Snip, snip and, you know, uh, hippo reserve or something. I mean, I don't know. What else? Yeah. Like, like really for them maybe they could move to miami um like a lot of the 80s cocaine did you know? so i don't know where hippos are indigenous i mean i know africa but i don't know what part so do you just like fly them over? maybe you could give them a florida key you know yeah like, they uh, can just sort of own just that own a key like a hippo colony yeah i kind of we may have just solved this should we get a hippo I don't know where you're going to put it. This office is, you guys have expanded a little bit here, but well, yeah. I know it's a little empty without, actually, you know. Like, but in a work from home environment. Do you know how much of the workforce is going to come back? Because maybe there is room for hippos. Well, maybe we should yeah. think about it. Yeah, these yeah. Guys, these guys, the guys who are here probably yeah, don't like it. Like, oh, uh, I'm sure like hippo shit is not like a pleasant um, atmospheric. I, 
issues. Yeah, that's a good point. I wonder how coked up Escobar was when he decided (laughs) to import the hippos. You can kind of see it happening, right? I can completely see it happening. Like, get me a plane. We're going to get a hippo. Not that I know anything about that, but I I would just, uh, you know, these guys are sitting around doing coke, listening to 80s music, and. You know, they, they, they've definitely- Miami Vice is on. Well, that's Miami Vice is on. They've definitely upped the ante in a lot of different ways. I'm sure they, you know, brought in a bunch of animals from indigenous, you know. And then it's like, you know what we fucking need, man? We need, <laughs> we need a fucking hippo, man. Like, have you seen what hippos do? And then the other guy's like, no, what do hippos do? Well, I don't know, man. That's yeah, why we need they to eat get watermelons. Yeah, like yeah, one. But get... you ever seen the video of the hippo chasing the boat and it speeds off and the thing goes after them and then like pops out of the water? Well, actually, They're here's scary. I, here's what happened. I, now I know what happened. I know what happened. Did you ever, when you were like in you know high school, college, doing whatever, you know, not that we did any of that, um, did you ever just like watch those nature shows all the time? So I Pablo Escobar's sitting there. It's maybe not a party. He's probably just coked out of his brain with like two or three other guys watching yeah. like the nature channel and there's a hippo show and he's like that's a pretty cool animal we should get some hippos here yeah so they're native to sub-saharan africa so he must have just like chartered a plane and gotten some over look i think if you're pablo escobar circa 1986 you can get just by anything you want right you were a billionaire yeah with then, connections then like the cia killed you and yeah, yeah. but not weren't they buddy buddy first yeah i mean everybody should read a great book uh, killing pablo by Mark Bowden. Oh, yeah. The uh, guy who wrote Black Hawk Down. And I love that guy. All, you should read all his books. He's just a great writer. But uh, that's a really cool book. All right. I'll check that out. Maybe he'll, maybe we can have him on and he can tell us about he the, might, the we, origin he story. He probably knows all about the hippos. All right. I'll sh- we'll shoot him a note after this. Okay. That's enough about cocaine hippos. Um, when we come back, we will have Ben's interview with uh, Member of Parliament David Lammy. So stick around for that. everyone, it's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for up to half the cost. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Savings based on cost of Consumer Cellular single line 1, 5, and 10 gig data plans with unlimited talk and text compared to lowest cost single line postpaid unlimited talk text and data plans offered by T-Mobile and Verizon January 2024. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Angie's List is now Angie, and we've heard a lot of theories about why. I thought it was an eco-move. Fewer words, less paper. No, it was so you could say it faster. No, it's to be more iconic. Must be a tech thing. But those aren't quite right. It's because now you can compare upfront prices, book a service instantly, and even get your project handled from start to finish. Sounds easy. It is, and it makes us so much more than just a list. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I. Or download the app today. I am very pleased to welcome back to the podcast David Lammy, uh, who is a Labor Party member of Parliament for Tottenham since the year 2000. Um, 
David, like me, right, is, is you were once a young person in politics and now I've uh, been around for a bit, uh, which means that he's now the shadow secretary of state for justice and shadow Lord Chancellor in Keir Starmer's shadow cabinet. So, David, welcome back to the podcast. Thanks a lot, Ben. Making me feel old. 21 <laughs> years I've done in public life. That's unbelievable. That's kind of insane. When you and I met in 2007, we both were, were relatively we, new to this we game. Babies. Um, here we are, right? And we solved all the problems, so there's nothing left to do. Yeah. Um, okay, so there's a few things that we've been talking about that I, we wanted to bring you in to, to – because uh, you've been either at the middle of it, uh, obviously, uh, on the ground there in the UK. The first, obviously, the, the last week we were talking about the tragic uh, killing of Sir David Amos. Um, and I know you've spoken a lot um, you know, about – uh, the issue of security for politicians, the issue of how the current environment of, of extremism in politics has, has made lawmakers more vulnerable. Um, you know, having had a little bit of time to, to deal with this um, episode, which obviously comes from the uh, apparently from an Islamic extremist uh, attacker, whereas the, the Joe Cox uh, killing five years ago is from a more right wing extremist. Uh, what What is your sense of what needs to be done to to secure politicians and and how, how how are you rethinking the way in which politicians make themselves accessible to voters while also ensuring we don't have these kinds of incidents uh, every five years or, or at all really well look ben i can't emphasize enough how connected british members of parliament are to their constituents um, I need to underline, particularly to an American audience, that we are fundamentally more on the ground visible than, say, a, a senator would be. What um, is, just real quick, what, what is a surgery? Because that's what he was doing at the time, and I think that word was new to Americans. An advice surgery. Um, anyone can make an appointment to come and see their member of parliament and they will be coming to see their member of parliament to fix a problem, uh, to fix a problem with their housing, if they're in public housing, to fix a problem with their um, immigration status or benefit or welfare status or a problem with their kid's school or, you know, everyday things, health that people come and see politicians about that require the politician to make a, represent a representation um, to an arm of the state or the bureaucracy, and it can really make a difference. Uh, or sometimes to lobby the Member of Parliament on a massive issue of the day. So, for example, as we head to COP26, uh, climate change activists come and see us and make it known that they are voting or not voting for us on the basis of what our party's position is on the climate emergency. So, uh, that accessibility is really, really fundamental. And we tend to do that um, advice surgery in a, in a town hall, um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a local church or, or a, you know, a, civic, a civic building of some kind. Um, and many of us do open surgeries. You don't have to make an appointment. You can just turn up uh, and see your member of parliament. And that is, you know, and it's important to understand even the prime minister, Boris Johnson, um, is doing advice surgeries, just as Tony Blair did and Margaret Thatcher did. Um, they won't be doing it quite as often as I would do mine, but they will be doing it once a month or so in their constituency. And for the Prime Minister, that's in the constituency of Uxbridge. Um, and so 
this killing was obviously horrendous. Uh, David Amos had advertised on his Twitter feed that he was going to do a surgery. Uh, apparently, um, unfortunately, the individual under suspicion was apparently looking around and studying the pattern of him and other MPs over over the course of uh, uh, you know some time, uh, and uh, he was killed in this way. And I think it 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 raises fundamental questions about how safe we are. And I do think that it's probably important to say that the truth is members of parliament are not as safe as they were 20 years ago. Uh, and it's unlikely that we will return to that kind of safety. We are figures in the public eye that um, it, it, living in a slightly more dangerous time. Um, and yes, we require more security. Uh, and that will mean that there's a police presence, I suspect, at our advice surgeries um, and more plainclothes security in and around some of what we're doing that's advertised. But but it, it's important to all of us to remain very, very accessible. You know, I people sometimes can't believe from abroad. I travel to work on the our tube on our underground train network. People see me, they approach me, they say, hi, I'm on the buses. That is very important to me. Um, I think that it also raises real issues around social media um, and um, the um, silos into which people are falling on social media, the extremism that's available uh, on social media, um, uh, the way it's polluting, particularly our youth. Uh, a lot of the individuals coming up with these profiles tend to be younger people. Um, and there's a really vigorous debate here in the UK around um, uh, an online harms legislation and bringing that forward. The Prime Minister said he expects it to be in Parliament by um, December, uh, and we will have a very, very heated debate. And I suspect that online harms bill will now be a lot tougher than it was scheduled to be prior um, um, to this killing. Well, just on that, I mean, how, I know you yourself have been subjected to threats online. What, what What is the environment of kind of violence online, not, not physical violence, but the the degree of hate speech and, 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 and threats that someone like Huge. you might uh, receive? How has that changed? And what would the online harm, what, what would you like to see done from a legislative perspective or regulatory perspective to deal with that? Well, one of the problems is that the companies do not take down hate speech. Um, are not supportive enough, I think, with the police and others when complaints are made. It takes time. It's lengthy. I think there are real debates in the UK about the extent to which you need to fine heavily these companies so that they take it seriously. I think there's a there's a healthy debate about anonymity um, and, and whether anonymity is a good thing uh, or is a necessary thing. Um, uh, certainly you should be able to track down pretty swiftly who an individual is, uh, why a company is not routinely asking for much more than just an email address. Um, uh, you know, should you be having to use a bank card to sort of at least get into the social, so that, so that you can be tracked pretty, pretty damn quickly. Um, uh, and, you know, what is tolerable, what is acceptable, uh, where the balance lies with freedom of speech and where the balance lies with hate. 
um, uh, and also young people's access. This is wider, of course, than just the issues of violence. It's it also um, there are big concerns about the porn industry and other aspects of um, of the internet. But how we are restricting, particularly for young people, uh, unhealthy unhealthy behaviours that can develop um, as they disappear into silos in their bedrooms. I mean, here in the U.S., obviously, like Facebook is what's been getting the most attention recently with the whistleblower, who I know has also uh, uh, talked to the U.K. parliament. But the the question, you know, a lot of these companies you talk about, they're, they're American-based, right? And obviously, the U.K. can pass its own uh, regulations. But but what would you like to see the United States doing in terms of massive platforms like Facebook um, and Twitter that that obviously travel and shape the politics of other countries? I think um, this you, is, yeah. Ben, I think this is really simple. You know, it's staggering when we look back the debate that we had um, in the Western world about the dangers of tobacco and how long it took to properly regulate the tobacco industry um, to protect people's health and their safety and young people. It took years and years and years. And here we are uh, uh, with this huge expansion in technology and there are huge benefits, but every single parent in the developed world knows that this has got to be properly regulated and the regulation is poor. And the U.S. has to lead because many of these companies are U.S. based. Um, this actually needs international effort. I am absolutely sure as a legislator here in the U.K. that flash forward in 20 years time, this will be a far more regulated environment than it is today. And people will look back and they won't believe the Wild West that we tolerated and encouraged. You know, this really struck me when I spent some time in Silicon Valley. And I realised that none of the execs working at this company, these companies allow their children <laughs> to do what the rest of the population's doing. Um, so look, the, the US must lead. Um, and I'm not seeing quite the leadership that we are. There was a good, healthy debate during the general election campaign in the United States, but things seem to have got quieter than they were. Um, but this needs real international effort. There's a uh, there's some effort coming from the European Union that are yeah. concerned about this, who are acting a little bit more aggressively. Countries like Australia are acting unilaterally. Um, and I think, as I say, we'll get this unilateral action from the um from the UK. But this really needs proper, concerted international effort. This is the same debate that we had on tobacco 20, 30, 40 years ago. Yeah. Well, look, I, I couldn't agree more. Um, it's the single biggest thing we could do for, for public health and safety and also the health and safety of democracy itself, which is getting eviscerated by these platforms. Uh, I want to just shift pace because we've got you here. Uh, and there's a number of topics we've talked to you about over the years uh, related to Brexit. Um, and and I think if, if uh, to to listeners of this podcast, particularly American ones who are kind of casual followers of UK politics, um, you start to see you know reports on shortages of of, of gasoline as petrol lines, and then there there's shortages of truck drivers, and there's there's supply chain problems globally, but that are more acute in the UK. Um, and what way are the kind of consequences of Brexit becoming? Uh, apparent in day-to-day -day life more and more in, 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 in Britain these days? Well, you will recall that the mantra of Boris Johnson um, that he won our general election on was get Brexit done. Uh, he got Brexit done. 
But what's becoming clear is that there was no plan. Um, He didn't have a Brexit plan. And because there is no Brexit plan, um, we're now dealing with a massive skills shortage. Uh, We've got problems with hauliers. We've got problems in agriculture. Uh, We've got problems in the construction and building industry. Uh, We've got significant issues with people who were in the UK from European Union having gone back to the European Union um, post-Brexit, but also, of course, because of the pandemic. Um, And it's not clear how those school shortages are going to be filled. Costs are rising. The cost of living is rising here in the UK. Um, uh, And it's likely that people are going to have a far more expensive uh, Christmas. And for that reason, I think that the decibel level on this issue is is going up. But believe me, it's going to go up considerably further as we head into... 2022. And if you put that alongside the inflation that seems to be coming into um, the UK economy, we've got real big concerns. And this is all because there was no plan. Um, Brexit was simply a slogan, banded around politically. um, And the nuts and bolts that you've got to, to make this thing work. Where are these trade deals, by the way? Um, I remember it was your old boss that said, look, I, I'm sorry to the UK, you know, I think you might be at the back of the queue. And here we are yeah. <laughs> five yeah. years later and we're clearly not at the front of the queue. <laughs> um, yeah. So, yeah. you know, we're not even hugging the US as close as we need to in the wake of leaving the European Union. So it's a very cold winter of discontent that is emerging here in the UK. Well, so if you're you're obviously you know part of Keir Starmer's team in terms of shadow cabinet, uh, the leader of the Labour Party there, um, and it, how do you make a political argument that on the one hand, you know Brexit is done, right, and so you can't go back and 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 relitigate that fight? H- how do you articulate what it means to what what a criticism of of the consequences of Brexit um, that doesn't just feel like you're trying to fight the last battle, but it's about offering a different vision going forward? How do you how do you both make sure Boris Johnson is held accountable for the negative consequences of his Brexit um, while also being forward-looking? Look, I think it comes back to the simple mantra that I think was first coined in, the Amer- in America. Uh, it's the economy, stupid. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when it comes back to cost of living, when it comes back to not being able to get something in the supermarket because it's no longer there or the price has soared, uh, we've got energy problems here now uh, in the UK with rising gas uh, utility bills as well. Um, I, look, people blame the government of the day. Um, and um, I think they understand, yes, it was one thing to leave the European Union, but on Boris Johnson's head is the deal that he struck with the European Union on leaving. And it is that flawed deal that we argued a lot about because the Labour Party would have struck a very different deal. Um, But the deal that he struck that is now leading to the problems that we've got. By the way, we should say also these problems are not just um, domestic problems. We've got serious issues emerging in Northern Ireland uh, as the... Uh, UK government resiles from the deal that they struck with the European Union that's leading to further violence uh, in Northern Ireland um, and real issues 
about how uh, they get goods and services over this next period. So um, I, I think it comes back to the basic, the way that people perceive the economy. And in a sense, we've had here over the last five years uh, a, a peculiar political time because, of course, it was dominated by Brexit for at least three years. And then more recently, it's been dominated by the pandemic. Um, I think that we're now returning to politics as usual. Uh, we're not going to have one single issue dominating the whole political landscape. Uh, it goes back to the basics, which is the economy, law and order, um, healthcare, education. Um, those are the big issues of the time. Uh, and, uh, you know, as we head into tougher economic times, it's not the opposition that people will blame. It's the government of the day. Yeah. And so your your job is to offer that alternative to to the negative consequences that people can see for their in front of their own eyes. It, it's to offer an alternative and it's to offer a, an alternative based on hope and, 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 and credibility on things like the economy that the British people can get behind. Look, uh, what I would say about Keir Starmer is he is a serious man for serious times. And I think it would be very hard to argue that Boris Johnson, the <laughs> clown, uh, I think, on the international leadership scene, makes people laugh. And let's remember that Mr. Bean is one of our biggest comedy exports. Look, uh, I just think that in serious times, um, I... The sheen is coming off Boris Johnson. There's a lot still for the British Labour Party to do. And don't get me wrong, we have to transition successfully from being an effective opposition to being a government in waiting. And we have to make that transition over this next next period uh, to see an uptick in the polls and to see our prospects improve. But I do think that what we are seeing is the, sh the, the sheen coming off Boris Johnson as people feel that um, it's a bit like the emperor has no clothes. Yeah, well, you know, uh, David Axrod, you know, who, who you and I both know, used to say that uh, American electorates often tend to look for the opposite of the last person. Uh, and he said this, by the way, long before Trump, uh, um, you know, Clinton to George W. Bush, George W. Bush to Obama, then Obama to Trump, Trump to Biden. Um, a serious person would definitely be the opposite of Boris Johnson. So, so uh, uh, we we wish you the best, David, and uh, 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 always good to talk to you. I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk again. Hope to see you in uh, in Glasgow uh, in a couple weeks' time. Can't wait. Always good, Ben. Thank you. Thank you to David Lamy for doing the show. Thank you to Pablo Escobar. Uh, apparently, the name hippopotamus comes from the ancient Greek for river horse. Makes sense. Kind of. More like a river cow. Yeah, I was going to say, I don't know if horse is what I would go with, but yeah. Why not? Third largest type of land animal, mammal, sorry, and the heaviest extant artiodactyl, whatever that means. Um, they're huge. It is funny in like children's books, because like my kids, you know, read all these books. And, um, hippos are, you'd think they were like cuddly animals. So yes, I, I think there's like a, I think it's not really the case. Yeah, no, like hungry, they, hungry they hippos. don't want to be cuddled. No, uh, no, don't. They want to be left alone. Don't cuddle a hippo. Actually, I read a story about a man who raised a hippo from uh, infancy, and you can guess what happened 
at the end of the day. Yeah, it didn't end well. And that's before the hippo did any lines. So I'm just saying, like, <laughs> yeah. when you introduce cocaine to the Sober mix, hippo. You know, like, yeah. might be might, might want to give the hippos something that chills them out instead of something that amps them up. Yeah, well. Just, just going down the limb. I don't know what Pablo Escobar did. I mean, I, don't I, mean, I can't speak for him. Well, that's it for uh, Animal Planet this week. But uh, we will uh, see you guys on, on next Wednesday. See ya. Pod Save the World is a Crooked Media production. The executive producer is Michael Martinez. Our producer is Haley Muse. It's mixed and edited by Andrew Chadwick. Kyle Seglin is our sound engineer. Thanks to our digital team, Elijah Cohn, Yale Freed, and Phoebe Bradford, who film and share our episodes as videos each week. Whether you're a morning person or a bedtime procrastinator, everyone deserves a mattress that works for their style. And you'll find the best mattress for you at Ashley. The new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley brings you one-of-a-kind body-conforming technology, making every sleep tailored to be your best. The collection also features cool-to-the-touch covers and motion absorption to help minimize sleep disruptions from partners, pets, or kids. Shop the all-new Temper Adapt Collection at Ashley in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that.